and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, February 23rd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today by a video conference by Rachel Rubin of The Washington Post. Hi, thanks for having me. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Joanne Cannon of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Hi, everybody. So no interview this week, but lots of interesting news, even with Congress in recess and the president out of the country. So we will get right to it. We're going to start this week with mental health. No, not the mental health of the population, although that remains a very large problem, but specifically the mental health of politicians. I am old enough to remember when a politician admitting to having been treated for any mental health problem basically disqualified them from holding higher office. You young people go Google Tom Eagleton. Now we have Senator John Fetterman, who made headlines while campaigning during his stroke recovery, checking himself into Walter Reed for major depression treatment. And the reaction from his colleagues on both sides of the aisle has been unusually compassionate for political Washington. Have we turned a corner here on admitting to having problems, not meaning incapable of serving or working? It's obviously getting better. But I think as we saw with Fetterman's coverage during the campaign, it was far from perfect. And I think there was some dissatisfaction that his coverage was in many sometimes unfair and how his stroke and his stroke recovery and his needs for accommodations were presented in the media. But I do think we are shifting at least somewhat from thinking about Does this situation make a person fit to serve to thinking about, okay, what does this person's experience navigating the healthcare system perhaps provide that might actually make them a better representative or understand their constituents' needs in navigating the healthcare system, which is a big part of our political agenda? There are very few times when Congress makes nice. I think on rare occasions, mental health has done it. I can think of the fight for mental health parity was a bipartisan pair. Senator Pete Domenici had a daughter with schizophrenia, and Senator Paul Wellstone had, what was it? Was it a brother? I think it was a sibling, yeah. With a severe mental illness, I no longer remember whether it was schizophrenia or another severe mental illness. And they teamed up to get mental health parity, which they didn't get all the way, and there are still gaps, but they got the first, and it took years. And they were a very unlikely very character. Very unlikely couple. was a very conservative Republican. Wilson was a very liberal Democrat. And their personalities were completely like, you know, one was a kind but grumpy person and one was the teddy bear. And they were very odd couple in in every possible way. And it didn't make lawmakers talk about themselves at that point, but they did get more open about their family. And about 10 or 15 years later, there was a, a senator's son uh, died by suicide, and he was very open about it. It was really one of the most remarkable moments I've ever seen on the Hill, because other people started getting up and talking about loved ones who had died by suicide, including Don Nichols, who was very conservative, who had never spoken about it before. And this was Senator Gordon Smith, who, whose son had died at the time, and he tried to put it to use and, and got mental health legislation for college. So these were like you know 10 or 15 years apart. But Congress, they don't treat each other very well. It's not just politics. They're, they're, they're often very, quite nasty across party lines. And so this was sort of like the third moment I've seen where a little bit of compassion and identification came out. Is it a kumbaya turnaround? No, but it's good to see kindness, not he should resign this moment. I mean, it, it, the, the response was pretty human and humane. And we also had the unique moment with Patrick Kennedy, who was then in the House, 
son of Senator Ted Kennedy, who was still in the Senate. Um, and Patrick Kennedy, of course, had had substance abuse issues in addition to his mental health issues. And he actually championed through what turned into the final realization of the mental health parity that Domenici and Wellstone had started. So, I mean, to, to Sarah's point, I think sometimes if the person experiences it themselves, they may be even more able to navigate through to help other people. So You're not immune from mental illness if you're a lawmaker and neither is your family. And there are a number of very sad stories. And there, there are other lawmakers who've, who've lost relatives to suicide. So there's this additional connection between stroke and depression that I think got a little bit of attention here because that's also a thing. Yeah. All right. Well, then again, it is not all sunshine and roses on the political mental health front. Former South Carolina Republican Governor Nikki Haley, who's now running for president, is proposing a mental competency test for politicians over the age of 75. That would, of course, include both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But this week, Haley extended her proposed mental competency test to the Senate, where there are dozens of members over the age of 75. She specifically called out 81-year-old Bernie Sanders after he called her proposal ageism. Now, it's pretty clear that Haley is using this to keep herself in the news and it's working. But could we actually see mental competency tests rolled out at some point? And who would decide what constitutes competency in someone who's getting older? Or younger. Or younger, yeah. <laughs> it has Joanne solved aging. <laughs> I think that's where the what Julie said in terms of who would decide, I think that's where it gets really dicey. I think, first of all, if you were to deal with this, there just seems no way you can make it based on age, right? Because competency is not necessarily tied with age. But I think like ethically, I'm not sure our society has any fair way to really determine. And it would just become such a political football that I don't think anybody wants to deal with figuring out how to do that. Obviously, you don't want somebody probably in office who is not capable of doing the job to a point where they really can't be productive. But again, as we've seen with these other health issues, you also don't want to exclude people because they are not perfectly in some sort of heightened state of being that, you know, all people are not perfect in capacity at every single moment and deal with struggle. So there's this fine line, I think, that would be too difficult to sort of figure out how to do that. And we've, you could be fine one day and not fine the next. So if you have a disease that cognitive decline that's gradual, you know, when do you pick it up? When do you define it? And then you could have something very sudden, like car crash, a stroke, and, you know, any number of things that can, could cause cognitive damage immediately, right? Now, we didn't know then, but we know now that Ronald Reagan had the first stages of dementia towards the end of his second term. Sorry, Rachel, you wanted to say something. We've seen careful reporting around, I think, about like the San Francisco Chronicle story last year about Diane Feinstein, which essentially looked at this. There were some kind of questions around and Cochran as well. And it's something journalists have looked at pretty carefully by talking to other senators and, and those who know the lawmakers well to see how they are, essentially. It's Strom Thurmond, who was, to a lay person, like all the reporters covering the Hill, it was clear that, you know, he served until he was, what, 98 or something? You know, it was very clear that half the time he was having struggles. And I remember so many times that there would be the very old senators on the floor who would basically be napping on the floor of the Senate. That might be a sign of mental health. Yeah, that's true. But napping because they couldn't stay away, not not just curling up for a nap. But I mean, it's an interesting discussion. Uh, you know, as I say, I'm pretty sure that Nikki Haley is doing it 
it to try and sort of poke at both Biden and Trump and keep herself in the news. And as I say, it's working. But I think there's the question of fitness that I think has come up over and over again. I mean, Paul Sangas was running for president. What? the 90s and, and said he was over his lymphoma or leukemia. I think he had lymphoma, yeah. Um, you know, said he was fine and it turns out he wasn't and he actually died quite young quite soon after not getting the nomination. So there are legitimate issues of fitness, mental and physical, for the presidency. I would think that there's a different standard for senators just because you're one out of a hundred instead of one out of one. I think there is a tradition which Trump didn't really follow. There is a tradition of disclosure, but it's not foolproof. And Trump certainly just had, remember, he had that letter from his doctor who also didn't live much longer after that saying he was the most fit president in history. Like, just don't get me started, but basically said he was a Greek god. <laughs> and and so there are legitimate concerns about fitness, but it's hard to figure out. I mean, it was really hard to figure out in Congress how to do that. Yeah, I, I think the who decides will, will be the, the most difficult part of that, which is probably why they haven't done it yet. All right, well, turning to policy. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the coming Medicare wars with President Biden taking aim at Republicans in his State of the Union speech. And particularly, although we didn't name him, with Florida Senator Rick Scott, who last year as head of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee, released a plan that would have sunset every federal program, including Medicare and Social Security, every five years, and they would cease to be unless Congress reapproved them. We know how much trouble Congress has doing anything. This horrified a whole lot of Republicans who not only have been on the wrong end politically of threatening Medicare and paid a price for it at the ballot box, but who themselves have used it as a weapon on Democrats. See my column from last week, which I will put in the show notes. So now, kind of predictably, Senator Scott has succumbed and proposed a new plan that would sunset every federal program except Medicare and Social Security. But I imagine that's not going to end this particular political fight, right? The Democrats seem to have become, you know, a dog with a bone on this. Yeah, it's known as Metascare for a reason, right? It's something like both political parties use and try and weaponize. I mean, I think kind of one of the really big questions for me when I kept on hearing this, like, what, you know, cuts to Medicare, what does that actually mean in practice. Some experts said that, you know, it might simply kind of mean slowing the rate of growth in the program compared to what it would have been, which doesn't necessarily impact people's benefits. It can. It it depends how it's done. But I mean, we've seen this political fight before. It happened during the Affordable Care Act. And afterwards, kind of the effect of cutting like Medicare Advantage plan payments, et cetera, didn't really make plans less generous. They've continued to be more generous. So it's something that we'll continue to see Biden talk about because the administration thinks it it plays well among seniors. But even as Bernie Sanders pointed out this week, we're going to have to deal with Medicare and Social Security eventually. They can't continue on their current path because they will both run out of money at some point unless something gets changed. But right now, it seems that both sides are much happier to use it as a cudgel than to actually sit down and figure out how to fix it. But one thing that's interesting is that it wasn't a big issue in the November elections. The Democrats late in the game tried to draw attention to the Rick Scott proposal. I almost wrote a piece that there was no discussion of Medicare for the first time in years. And just as I was starting to write it, they began talking about it a little bit, so I didn't write it. But it never stuck. It wasn't a major issue. And the one race where it really could have been would have been Wisconsin. 
because that was a tight Senate race that the Democrats really wanted to defeat Ron Johnson, who is to the right of Rick Scott on phasing out Medicare. He's the only one who endorsed Scott and actually wanted to go further. And it didn't even really stick there. So it's sort of interesting that it's you know now bubbling up. I mean, yes, we're into 2024, but we're not into 2024 the way we're going to be into 24. It's sort of interesting to see that the Democrats are hitting this so far. No, I think that's because debt of the ceiling. debt ceiling. Yeah. Right. But it's supposedly off the table for the debt ceiling. Which doesn't mean, as you know, Rachel just said, there are legitimate fiscal issues that Democrats and Republicans both acknowledge. They're crudely speaking, Democrats want to raise more money for them, and Republicans want to slow spending. That's a, that's an oversimplification. But the rhetoric is always throwing Grandma off the cliff. Never Grandpa, always Grandma. Um, always Grandma. <laughs> Randy off the. You, you know, actually, you know, you can do things over a twenty-year period. That's what we did with Social Security. We did raise the age by in a bipartisan fashion on Social Security. Twenty years. You know, it took like twenty years to face it. And I would point out that the only only person who really reacted to Rick Scott's plan when it came out last February, it was I think a year ago this week, was Mitch McConnell. Yeah, he blew a was, gasket. Who was immediately <laughs> disavowed it. Yeah. So Mitch McConnell knew what a problem it could turn into and kind of has now. So we have kind of the reverse sides in Medicare Advantage of the fight. That's the private alternative to traditional Medicare. It's the darling of Republicans who touched off the current popularity of the program when they dramatically increased payments for it in 2003, which led to increased benefits and increased profits for insurance companies. They kind of split those that extra money between themselves and the beneficiaries and not surprisingly increased popularity to the point where a majority of beneficiaries right now are in. Medicare Advantage plans rather than traditional Medicare. On the other hand, these plans, which were originally supposed to cut overall Medicare costs, are instead proving more expensive than traditional Medicare. And Democrats would like to claw some of those profits back. But that looks about as likely as Republicans sunsetting Medicare, right? There's just too many people who are too happy with their extra benefits. I guess we've seen two proposals from the administration this year, which would change Medicare benefits, and Republicans aren't trying to paint this as a cut, but, or sorry, it wouldn't change benefits, but to change Medicare Advantage, one which... To change payments for Medicare Advantage. Yes, exactly. One which essentially would, like, increase the government's ability to audit plans and recover past overpayments, and one which is the annual rate proposal, and there's some aspects in there that Medicare Advantage plans are kind of on a full court lobbying press to say these are cuts, which the administration is pushing back on really, really hard. So this is kind of another microcosm of this Medicare scare tactics. And they're all over TV already. It's commercials that probably don't mean much to anybody uh, if you're not completely up on this fight of like, Congress is thinking about cutting Medicare Advantage. No, really? I do laugh every time I see that ad. But, you know, Julie, you're right that this began as a Republican cause. I mean, they had a similar program in the late 90s that flopped and they revived it as Medicare Advantage. But it it didn't stay a Republican pet project for long. I mean, Democrats starting with those in states with a lot of retirees, I'm thinking in Florida, who had Democratic senators at the time. I mean, they jumped on board, too, because people like their people who want to stay in traditional Medicare. And there are people who jumped on to Medicare Advantage, which has certain advantages. It is less partisan than it began. It has always been more expensive than it was touted to be. 
And it's now we're heading into 20 years since the legislation was passed and nothing has really been done to change that trajectory, nothing significant. And I don't think you're going to see a major overhaul of it. There may be things that you can do in a bipartisan basis that nip. But if you're nipping at that many billions of dollars, a nip is can be a lot of money. Yeah, that's the thing about Medicare. Although I would point out also that the reason it flopped in the late 1990s is because Congress whacked the payments for it as part of the Balanced Budget Act. And as they gave the money back... It got more popular again because, lo and behold, extra money means extra benefits and people liked it. So its popularity has been definitely tied to how much the payments are that Congress has been willing to provide for it. And how they market and who they market to. Absolutely, which is a whole nother issue. But I want to do a COVID check-in this week because it's been a while. First, we have a study from Duke University published in this week's Journal of the American Medical Association showing that using the deworming drug ivermectin, even at a higher dose and for a longer time, still doesn't work against COVID. This was a decent-sized, double-blind, randomized, controlled trial over nine months. Why is this such a persistent desire of so many people and even doctors to use this drug that clearly doesn't work? You know, there's been a lot of misinformation out there, um, particularly spread by the right and people that have not just in general trusted the government during COVID and felt like this drug worked. And for whatever reason, they were sort of being convinced that there was sort of a government effort to kind of repress that. What's interesting to point out, you know, you mentioned the trial being run at Duke. This was actually a part of a big NIH study to study various drugs for COVID. So even NIH has been willing to actually do the research and to prove whether the drug does or doesn't work. One of the issues this raises is this was one of many studies at this point that has sort of shown the drug doesn't work. In this one, they even were willing to test, okay, a lower dose didn't work. Let's test a higher dose. Again, it fails. And the question becomes is, is there any amount of data or trials that can convince people who have, again, sort of gone through this process where they've been convinced by this misinformation to believe it works and that the government is lying to them. Is there any way to convince them with this type of evidence it doesn't work? And then what are the ethics of doing this research on people, right? Because you're wasting government resources, you're wasting resources in general, you're wasting time, money, you're giving people a drug in a trial when they could be getting another drug that might actually work. So it's really complicated because, again, I'm not sure you can convince the true ivermectin fans. I'm not sure there's any amount of this type of scientific evidence that's going to convince them that it doesn't work for COVID. But while we are talking about scientific studies about COVID, a controversial meta-analysis from the esteemed Cochrane Review found basically no evidence that masks have done anything to prevent the spread of COVID. But this is another study that seems to have been kind of wildly misinterpreted. It didn't find what it looked like was not necessarily what we think. A lot of it turned out to be studies that were seeing whether flu, whether masks prevented against flu rather than against COVID. I mean, have we sort of ended the whole idea of mask wearing and maybe not correctly? This was a meta-analysis by Cochrane, which is really basically, I mean, I think Sarah's probably knows more about Cochrane than the rest of us, but their reviews are meaningful and taken seriously, and they're usually well done. The studies that they used in this meta-analysis didn't ask the question that the headline said it asked. And also, I mean, I don't totally understand why they did it, because A, as Julie just pointed out, there was something like 78 studies, 76 of which were done before COVID. So, you know, A, that's a problem. And B, you didn't actually measure who was wearing a mask. It was like, okay, you're told to wear a mask, or maybe you're required to wear a mask if you're working in a hospital while you're in the hospital. But, you know, then you go out to a bar that night and you're not wearing a mask. I mean, it didn't really look at the totality of 
whether people were actually wearing masks properly, consistently. And therefore, why use this flu data to answer questions about masking? And secondly, I, I also think it always is worth reminding people that you know, no one ever said masks were the be all and end all. It was a component. You know, you masking, hand washing, vaccination, distancing, testing, all the things that we didn't do right. <laughs> you, know, you know, ventilation. I mean, all the, there's a long list of things we didn't do right. Masking was one of many. This is not going to help if we ever need masks for any disease again in the future. It did not advance sort of this public health strategy. They call it like they like to talk about Swiss cheese, that any one step has holes in it. So you use a whole lot of steps and you don't have any more holes in your Swiss cheese. It's going to make it harder if we ever need them. Yeah. Well, and notwithstanding scientific evidence, now we have two Republican state lawmakers in Idaho who have introduced a bill that would make any mRNA vaccines illegal to administer in the state, not just to people, but to, quote, any mammal with violators subject to jail time. And if I may read the subhead of the story about this in the sci- at the science website Ars Technica, quote, it's not clear if the two lawmakers know what messenger RNA is exactly. In a normal world, I would say this is just silly and it couldn't pass, but we're not in a normal world anymore, right? I mean, we could actually see Idaho ban MN- mRNA technology, which is used, going to be used for a lot more than COVID. So I think the thing that really interests me about reading about this, and I'd be interested to hear what like legal scholars think about this, but I was wondering if there's a parallel here between this and what's going on with the abortion pill in Republican states and what the courts may do with that, because it seems to me like there's probably should be some kind of federal preemption that would kick in here, which is that vaccines are sort of regulated, approved by this technology by the federal government. Yes, there's some like practice of medicine where states sort of have control from the federal government. But this seems like a case where, and in the past, when states have tried to get into sort of banning FDA-approved products in this way, courts and so forth have pushed back and said, you can't do this. And I would say, I don't think this Idaho law would hold up if it gets passed. But now we have this issue going on with the abortion pill. And it seems like there could be this major challenge by the courts to FDA's authority So you do sort of wonder, is this another example of what could happen if this sort of authority gets challenged by the states? And like you said, we are in this different world where maybe three years ago, I would say, well, you know, even if Idaho can pass this, of course, you know, this isn't going to come to practice. But I do sort of wonder as we're watching some of these other legal challenges to FDA-approved technologies, what it could mean down the line. I mean, remember, also, we just went on ivermectin. There are state legislatures that have actually protected patients' rights to get ivermectin. And doctors' rights to provide it. Right. Yeah. And, so. and I know more than half the states had legislation. I don't know how many actually passed it. I don't remember. But, I mean, it was a significant number of states. So these are all these things that we're talking about are related of, you know, who gets to decide based on what evidence or lack thereof. So if there's a reason that I sort of brought these, th- these three things up because, after all this, a federal judge in California has temporarily blocked enforcement of a new state law that would allow the state medical board to sanction doctors who spread false or misleading information about COVID vaccines and treatments. One of the plaintiffs told the New York Times that the law is too vague, quote, today's quote unquote misinformation is tomorrow's standard of care, he said, which is absolutely true. So how should we go about combating medical misinformation? I mean, you know, sometimes people who sound wacky end up having the answer. You know, you don't want to stop them, but you also don't want people peddling stuff that clearly doesn't work. In addition to state boards, there are medical societies that are, I don't know how far they've gone, but they have said that they will take action. I'm sure that any action they take either will or has already ended up in court. So there are multiple ways of 
getting at misinformation. But, you know, like Sarah said it really well, there are people who've made up their mind and nothing you do is going to stop them from believing that. And some of them have died because they believe the wrong people. So I don't think we're going to solve the misinformation problem on this podcast, but or even off. I don't think the four of us are. If so, but we even could. if we were off a podcast, but um, it's very complicated. I, I, a lot of my work right now is centered on that. The idea that courts and states are coming down on the wrong side is, you know, in terms of where the science stands right now, understanding that science can change and does change. I mean, whether another version of that law could get through the California courts. I mean, there's some apparently some broad drafting problems with that law. I, I was I, saying, it yeah. hasn't been struck down yet. It's just been temporarily blocked right. while the court process continues. We, we'll see. All right. Well, let us move on to abortion since we've been kind of nibbling around the edges. Um, Rachel, you wrote about a group of abortion rights supporting Democratic governors organizing to coordinate state responses to anti-abortion efforts. What could that do? Um, yeah. So it, news this week, it's called the Reproductive Freedom Alliance. And essentially the idea is so governors can have a forum to more rapidly collaborate, compare notes on things like executive orders that are aimed at expanding and protecting abortion, bills moving through the legislature, budgetary techniques. And as we're talking about lawsuits, I mean, talk to some governors and, you know, that the Texas lawsuit from conservative groups seeking to revoke the FDA's approval of a key abortion pill is top of mind in this new alliance, kind of the ideas to be able to rapidly come together and have some sort of response if the outcome of that case doesn't doesn't go their way or other major looming decisions. I think it's interesting they are billing themselves as nonpartisan, but you know, only Democratic governors have signed up here. But we we could have had like Larry Hogan and the few moderate Republicans yeah, that are Baker. left if they were still yes, Charlie Baker. Sununu. If they were still there, which they're yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other interesting but, thing uh, about this is if, you know, kind of you look to 2024 and if uh, Republicans in the White House in 2025, you know, they might try and roll back actions Biden has, has done. So I could foresee kind of a Democratic governor's alliance trying to attempt to counteract that in a way that states Well, also on the abortion rights front, supporters in Ohio are trying to get a measure on the ballot that would write abortion rights into the state constitution. This has worked in other red and purple states like Kansas and Michigan, but Ohio, a state that's been trending redder and redder. It was the home of the first introduced six-week abortion ban five or six years ago. How big a message would that send if Ohio actually voted to protect abortion rights in its constitution? And does anybody think there's any chance that they would? I think it's interesting when you look at Kentucky and Kansas, which their ballot measures were different. It was for the state constitution to say that there was no right to an abortion. But abortion right, it was rights, a negative. They defeated saying there was no right. Yeah, I mean, abortion groups really think that public is on their side here. And anti-abortion leaders do kind of think that ballot measures aren't like fighting ballot measures isn't, you know, their best position either. So I think it'll be interesting to see something that had caught my eye with this is that the groups are trying to get it on the 2023 general election ballot and right now what some kind of republican lawmakers are trying to do to counteract not just abortion ballot measures but kind of more progressive ballot measures which is to try and kind of increase the threshold of passage for a ballot measure and there's a bill in the ohio legislature 
that would increase passage for enshrining anything into the state constitution to 60% support, but that would have to go to the people too. So essentially the timing here could kind of counteract that. So, yeah. Yeah. And as we saw in Kansas, you know, if you have this question at a normally sort of off time for a big turnout, you can turn out your own people. Um, So it would be, I assume they're doing that very much on purpose. They don't want it to be on the 2024 ballot with the president and Senate race in Ohio and everything else. All right. Well, one more on the abortion issue. Moving to the other side, a Florida lawyer is petitioning to have a pregnant woman who's been accused, although not convicted, of second degree murder released from jail because her fetus is being held illegally. Now, it's not entirely clear if the lawyer is actually in favor of so-called personhood or is just trying to get his client, the pregnant woman, out of jail. But these kinds of cases can eventually have pretty significant ramifications, right? If a judge were to say, I'm going to release this woman because the fetus hasn't done anything wrong? Well, there's going to be an amendment to the personhood amendment saying, except when we don't like the mother, right? I mean, she's already almost at her due date, so (laughs) it probably is going to be moot. There's an underlying question in this case about whether she's been getting good prenatal care, and that's a separate issue than personhood. I mean, if the allegations are correct and she has not gotten the necessary prenatal care, then she certainly should be getting the necessary prenatal care. Um, I don't think this is going to be ruled on in time. (laughs) I think she's already in her her final month of pregnancy. So I don't think we're going to see a ruling that's going to create personhood for fetal inmates. She'll have the baby before she gets let out of jail. I think other lawyers might try this. I mean, I think it's legal chutzpah, I guess, but it, I, I once one lawyer came up with it, I don't see why other lawyers won't try it for other um, incarcerated pregnant women. Yeah, and, and you could see it feeding into the whole personhood issue of, you know, is, is the fetus have its own set of individual rights, you know, apart from the pregnant woman who's carrying it? And it's obviously something that's, uh, that we're going to continue to grapple with, I think, as this debate continues. All right, that is the news for this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? I took a look at a story in the DCS called Locals Who Don't Speak English Need Medical Translators, but some say they don't always get the service. It was by Amanda Michelle Gomez and Hector Alejandro Arzate. And it basically takes a look at a lack of medical translators who can help patients who don't speak English in the D.C. area and the harm that can be caused when patients don't have that support, whether they're in a hospital or a medical appointment, focusing on a woman who basically said she wasn't getting food for three days and actually left the hospital to provide her food and she was undergoing and cancer treatment and in there for an emergency situation. It also highlights a federally funded facility in D.C. that is trying to support patients in the area with translators. But some of the sort of health policy challenges they face, such as, you know, there's reimbursement for basically accompanying a patient to an appointment. But there's kind of out of appointment care that patients need, like if you're sent home with instructions in English and there's difficulty funding that care. And I mean, I just think the issue is kind of important and fascinating because people who cover health policy, I think, tend to realize 
sometimes even if you have an MD and a PhD in various aspects of this system, it can be very hard to navigate your care in the U.S., even if you are best positioned. So to add in not speaking a language and in this case, having had experience trying to help somebody who spoke a language much less more commonly spoken in the U.S., you know, I was thinking, well, she spoke Spanish, you know, how bad could it be? A lot of people in the U.S., you know, often are bilingual and Spanish is a common language that you might expect lots of people in a medical facility to know. So I think, you know, again, it just shows the complexities here of even when you're best positioned to succeed, you often have trouble succeeding as a patient. And when you add in other factors, we really set people up for pretty difficult situations. Yeah, it's, it was kind of eye-opening. Rachel? My extra credit, it's titled, Her Baby Has a Deadly Diagnosis, Her Florida Doctors Refuse an Abortion. And it's by Francis Stenstellers from Sellers from the Washington Post. I chose the story because it kind of gives this rare window into how an abortion ban can play on the ground when a fetus is diagnosed with a fatal abnormality. So Francis basically chronicles how one woman in Florida, Deborah Dorbert, and her husband Lee were told by a specialist when she was roughly 24 weeks pregnant that the fetus had a condition incompatible with life and the couple decided to terminate the pregnancy. But they say they were ultimately told by doctors that they couldn't due to a law passed last year in Florida that banned um, most abortions after 15 weeks. And so that new law does have exceptions, including allowing later termination if two physicians certify in writing that the fetus has a fetal, fetal abnormality. So it's not in clear exactly how or why the Dobert's doctors said that they couldn't um, or how they applied the law in this situation. Yeah, I feel like, you know, this is maybe the 10th one of these that I've read of women who have wanted pregnancies and wanted babies and something goes wrong with the pregnancy and an abortion ban has prevented them from actually getting the care that they need. And I just wonder if the anti-abortion forces have really thought this through, because if they want to encourage women to get pregnant, I know a lot of women who want babies, who want to get pregnant, want to have a baby, but they're worried that if something goes wrong, that they won't be able to get care. You know, this question of how close to death does the pregnant woman have to be for the abortion to, quote unquote, save her life? We keep seeing it now in, in different states and in different iterations. Sorry, it's my little two cents. Joanne. My extra credit is from the Atlantic, Catherine Wu. And the headline is, Eagles are falling, bears are going blind. It's about bird flu or avian flu. It does not say it couldn't jump to humans. It does say it's not likely to jump to humans, but that we have to be better prepared and we have to watch it. But it really made the interesting point that it is much more pervasive among not just birds, but other animals than prior what we in lay people call bird flu. And it's going to have 60, something like 60 million U.S. birds have died. It is affecting Peruvian sea lions, grizzly bears, bald eagles, all sorts of other species, mostly birds, but some mammals. And it's going to have a huge impact on wildlife for many years to come. And, you know, sort of the ecological and our ecological environment, our, our wildlife environment is a really interesting piece. I hadn't seen that aspect of it described. And if you think and eggs are going to stay expensive. I was going to say this morning, I actually saw that in the Cambodia reported um, one of the first deaths in this sort of recent wave of a person with this bird flu. So it, it's a question, I guess, is in the past, it hasn't easily spread from person to person. And so that would be like the big concern where, you know, you'd worry about really large outbreaks. 
Yeah, because we don't have enough to worry about right now. We should be watching this one. I mean, this is a different yeah. manifestation of it, but it, but we do know there have been isolated cases like the one Sarah just described where, you know, people have gotten and a few people have died, but it has not easily adapted. And of course, if it does adapt, that's a different story. And then what in what form does it adapt? Is it more like the flu we know? Or, I mean, there are all sorts of unanswered questions. Yes, we need to watch it. But this story was actually just so interesting because it was about what it's doing to animals. Yeah, it is. The ecosystem is more than just us. Well, my story is from Stat News by Callie McMurray, and it's highly relevant for our podcast. It's called Current Treatments for Cramps Aren't Cutting It. Why Aren't There Better Options? And yes, it's about menstrual cramps, which affect as many as 91% of all women of reproductive age, nearly a third of them severely. Yet there's very little research on the actual cause of cramps and current treatments. Mostly non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or birth control pills don't work for a lot of people. As someone who spent at least a day a month of her 20s and 30s in bed with a heating pad, I can't tell you how angry it makes me that this is still a thing with all the other things that we have managed to cure in medicine. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ever-patient producer, Francis Yang. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Rachel? At Rachel underscore Rubine. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.